What if? What if the struggle isn't real? What if everything you've been told is impossible is actually deliciously feasible? What if you could work anywhere, travel, find your purpose, all while growing your wealth and not spending it? Welcome to the Struggle Isn't Real podcast. I'm Cody Sanchez-Baker, and and my job here is to share how normal people have self-designed their lives, relationships, jobs, and bodies. The question to ask yourself is simply this. What if it was easy? All right. Welcome to another episode of the Struggle Isn't Real podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on today with us, Adam. Thank you for giving us your time. You're welcome, Cody. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, I know that uh, everyone on the podcast has now heard about your bio and your background. And what you guys didn't hear is that Adam and I were speaking right before this podcast about his eight city tour all around the Middle East, speaking to institutional clients for his business. And so I'm really thrilled to have Adam on, not only to talk about how to get into the world of finance and how to build a business and how to build a corporate business or your career within a corporate sphere, but also how to do business internationally. So Adam, I kind of wanted to kick it off with first talking about your story a little bit because you have such an interesting background um, from our days back at at State Street. Um, I learned a little bit of it, but can you tell everybody listening, you know, they know that you head um, New World Capital Advisors. Um, They know that you are in international investments, but can you talk to us about what was your journey to where you are today? Sure, Cody. Well, well, firstly, thanks for having me on. And um, it's an interesting, um, everyone has their journey. And, and, and my journey was very much uh, one of um, uh, striving to, to be better. Um, I, uh, I grew up in, um, uh, in Scotland, in Glasgow. I moved to London at the age of uh, 21. And I come off, actually, of, of Pakistani origin. And uh, well, my parents are from, my father's from Pakistan originally. But growing up in Glasgow in a, in a very, um, um, in a fast, fast moving city, uh, but in the suburbs where things are, are very slow, uh, I always had that urge to, to get out and get into what we call the big smoke of, of London. At the age of, um, after graduating from university in, in Glasgow in mathematics, I I got a, my first big break uh, to work uh, for Bloomberg uh, in London. And that's kind of where my journey began, where everything I did was almost focusing on, you know, I wanted to work with people. I wanted to work in international markets. Um, I always felt that um, uh, I could almost be a chameleon and pop up anywhere. And uh, I almost had this kind of, uh, in, in a way, uh, being... Uh, less experienced allowed me to uh, be a little bit, um, uh, you know, open open doors and markets uh, without uh, by by just asking questions. I then shifted uh, into investment banking, and very quickly, um, you know, a, a very close, uh, I'd say, mentor in Switzerland said to me, "Hey, Adam, um, I, I strongly advise that you." you get into, um, into asset management and uh, try to get into a sales role as quick as you can, as early as you can, uh, because the sky's the limit. Um, I got my, my first big break in a large US asset manager um, 
uh, on the west coast, uh, based out of, but I was based out of London. And, you know, I ended up at State Street working with you, Cody. And, you know, everything for me has been about, um, you know, finding an opportunity that I was, uh, I was passionate about, something I can make a difference in, but always trying to identify a dislocation or a gap in that next opportunity. So whenever I've tried to pursue, um, uh, you know, a, an opportunity, everything has been about filling that gap with, uh, you know, skills that I bring to the table, uh, you know, contributing to the growth of a broader uh, goal. Uh, but everything, you know, ab about what I do is uh, uh, really comes from, uh, I'd say, it's like this desire uh, to, to, to succeed, but in a way that's probably, um, I'd say, uh, a little bit of a, it's different to, to uh, what people may assume to be normal. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, Adam and I, we both were at a, a large asset manager together and, and I loved one of the things that you said in particular, which I recall from you when we were closing, you know, big institutional deals. And so what, what Adam and I did, for those of you who aren't familiar with an asset manager, is essentially what, what we do is we create investment products um, that take any sort of underlying investment and we we wrap them all together in a vehicle. And when I say a vehicle, I mean a mutual fund, a hedge fund, a private equity fund, um, in order for big institutional clients to invest without having to pick only one investment, right? They could have diversified or multiple options within a fund. And this is a really interesting industry. Um, if you don't know about asset management and you have questions, then, then put those in the comments and Adam and I can go and answer those for you. Um, but I always joke about it being like uh, investment banking with the upside monetary pot potential, but without the hours. So if, if, you if you like closing deals, but you don't want to work yourself to death, I like asset management. But um, Adam, you talked about one thing that I think is huge for anybody who's starting out or really anyone who wants a change. And that is that you've always opened doors um, almost through your naivete. So as opposed to some people saying, well, I don't have the experience, so I can't, or, you know, I don't know this, and so I just won't be quiet. You would use exactly that, let's say, weakness of, and, mm -hmm. and then ask questions to close deals. So can you talk to us a little bit about one, like, how, how do you do that? And two, how did you get over the fear of asking questions if perhaps you don't really know about the area you're speaking about? Yeah, no, it's a really, uh, it's a really good question. Uh, I even, I even question myself uh, a lot about, um, you know, uh, about how we, how we overcome a fear because for, for me, um, the, what, what I always try to do is focus on my strengths because I believe that those strengths are so transferable and, and I'll give you uh, an, an example. I remember when I, I walked into, um, I, I had my first big break at a firm called Western Asset Management. It was a large uh, fixed income manager, um, bond manager based in the US. And uh, I was 23 years old. Um, I barely knew what a bond was. And uh, I was kind of thrown into the deep end where I was working in the front office and I was raising capital for from large corporations and institutions. But I remember my colleagues who were more seasoned than me, 
and maybe more experienced than me, they'd almost like limited me to markets uh, that presented little opportunity. It was almost like them saying, hey, Adam, why don't you just sort of try and test up these small markets? And uh, I felt a lot of that was also because they had little confidence in what I could actually deliver, right? So it was almost a case of let's uh, see what this guy can do. But um, um, what I found after just spending a few weeks, I found that the markets they'd given me were, um, were maybe not quite the markets where I could see, you know, real business, you know, being executed. And, and you know, one thing that I found, which was fascinating, and it was actually to the success of the firm, the firm had been so successful um, on, um, on, on having, you know, sales coverage uh, based on language per country. So if you spoke French, you would cover French-speaking Europe, France, Belgium, Switzerland. If you were German speaking, you could cover some of Switzerland and Germany and Austria and so forth. Uh, what I found was that that a lot of the the the, the multinationals that I'd been um, targeting to to talk to uh, were sitting in a lot of these jurisdictions. Uh, but the one thing I had in common with those institutions was that that I was starting to develop product knowledge. Uh, and a market understanding. However, those institutions happen, happen to be in all types of uh, jurisdictions. So I then had to convince my colleagues internally um, that whilst I didn't have as much experience or as much broader product knowledge, uh, why don't I cover my own expenses um, to travel to some of those locations on the ground and I'm convinced I can, I can close deals. Uh, at the time, there was a lot of hesitation. Instead, what I did without kind of getting approval from anybody is I just went ahead, booked a flight actually to, um, to Ireland. Um, and I knew that if I asked the question, I probably wouldn't get, um, uh, I probably wouldn't get the answer I was looking for. So I went ahead, booked the flight to Ireland, uh, went and saw you know, a major US pharmaceutical company in Ireland. Uh, this was in my first nine months of the job. I identified a dislocation in their investment portfolio where uh, the credit crisis had just about arrived in 2008. And they were looking to, they were looking to move capital from a, a, high, a product which is of higher risk and they were looking for a lower risk uh, government, um, government backed product. And we had that. And uh, that was when I closed my first deal of um, $100 million uh, into a product where uh, if I had followed the process or the internal process, uh, I would never have made it to that investor. Uh, once I closed that deal, everyone was, you know, super happy and uh, patting me on the back. And, you know, it almost opened up the doors for me to start my journey in talking to investors in other jurisdictions such as Switzerland, Netherlands, Luxembourg, and then eventually moving into the Middle East and Asia. And I feel that if I didn't make that step, even though I had limited experience or limited knowledge on something, but I had, a, I had an instinct that there was opportunity there, I kind of followed my gut, followed my instinct, I almost followed through that uh, I had to make a decision that I knew that it, if, it, if it backfired, it could go, ahead, could go against me, right, in, in, in that company. But actually, um, uh, I, I do believe that almost being that age of 23, you know, youthful, 
having less experience kind of gave me that, um, uh, you know, helped me overcome a lot of those fears that people may encounter later in life. So, you know, I think that's kind of a, a kind of a good, a good, uh, a good view of, of kind of how I see things. No, I think that's great. I mean, the, the moral of the story, I think, is is knowing kind of who you are and having that confidence, no, to to listen to it and to follow through with it. Um, which is something I think we all cultivate. And one of the things that I really wanted to highlight too is, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the 80-20 rule or Pareto's mm -hmm. principle because I find that so many of us focus on the small everyday deals, the small everyday activities, checking our email inbox, following up on email, getting our inbox to zero, feeling really good about that, but not realizing that we're not actually accomplishing the big three standard deviation events that are going to change everything. So what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was, you know, when people hear a hundred million dollar deals, um, you know, I think when we were together, you closed a billion dollar deal, uh, if I recall. And, and I think people think, wow, I could never do that. Or wow, those numbers are just hard to contemplate. Um, and what I've found is that sometimes uh, the fishing is best where the fewest go. So if you go after the big deals, actually all of us through our own lacking of self-confidence or through people telling us that it's not possible, we don't actually go to the depths where there are less people and more opportunity. We play in the shallows, which are very crowded. So can you talk to me about, and, and you've always done that, um, while people were working on small deals in like established markets where you could have sort of these consistent small deals come in, you were going to Dubai and talking to some of the world's biggest institutional investors. So what do you think, like if I, if you were, if somebody listening is trying to close their version of a big deal or wants to go and systematically create a process to find these big opportunities, how do you set yourself up for that kind of success? It's a really, really good question, Cody. And I think one thing that has always been um, important to me is always trying to be like thinking, of, thinking about being ahead of the market or being ahead of the weight of capital. And when I mean ahead of the weight of capital, I mean today when if you're working for a big institution or whether you're uh, you're launching a startup or you know everything is about competitiveness and you know, taking market share, particularly the bigger you get, the more it's about market share. But what I found is that people love to look at their competition and look at who they're talking to. And my view is to kind of try to stay clear of, of having that mindset and try to focus on exactly where you are following your gut and doing things against the grain or against the status quo. So for example, I found that when I was uh, looking at some of those more developing markets, such as Dubai, such as the Middle East and Africa, what I found was that those institutions and, and corporates and firms out there were a little bit behind the curve in terms of their levels of sophistication or their levels of understanding of you know, more complex financial products. So for me, it wasn't just uh, an opportunity where I was competing in a, a smaller pull of fish uh, or sea of fish, what I found was I was actually uh, investing in, in, in a bigger opportunity in the years to come where all of that time invested would pay off 
into something that is going to really create, you know, or move the dial, uh, not only in terms of economic uh, terms, but also in terms of opening up so many more doors where business is about trust. Because what I found is there's a bit of a dislocation where if you're operating in, in conventional markets like Europe, the UK, the US, uh, business is very, is very systematic in terms of there's a process. If you follow the process, you'll get a share of the pie. When you start moving into those more emerging economies or less um, uh, progressive in terms of where they have got to at that point in time, a lot of it's based on relationship. A lot of it's based on visibility. And your visibility uh, is, is directly correlated to how credible the offering is. Whereas if you're operating in the Western markets or the more traditional um, uh, you know, European, UK, US markets, I found that those markets were, um, you know, you were, you were just one off a number of people coming in the door and uh, you've, you're, you become a little bit commoditized. So for me, I'm almost, my standpoint is being against the grain of commoditization, not in, not in terms of product, but in terms of, uh, you know, how you, how you deliver a service, but also uh, opening up doors to markets it should be driven by, you know, trying to be ahead of the market. So you're already two or three years into talking to those investors. By the time the likes of those big institutions are, are knocking at their door, uh, you've already established credibility. Why? Because you're visible. Huge. Yeah. And, you know, we talk a lot about commoditization in the world of investments and finance. And, you know, essentially all that that means is when you're a commodity, that means that there's not a lot of differentiation between you and the guy next to you or between your product and the product next to yours. And th the truth, in my opinion, is that anything is eventually commoditized if you don't stay ahead of the market. Like Adam, you're talking about. And whether you think that your product is cutting edge now, eventually it won't be. Eventually it will become a commodity too. And um, that is when you get into uh, price compression or essentially you're fighting the uh, battle for lowest fees. Whoever can get their fastest wins. And you know, in my business, we always say that uh, low margins are the kiss of death because what happens with low margins is commoditization um, and with low margins, you stop losing your competitive edge. And so for any business professional, how you want to think about this is the question is, okay, so if you know you have to go against the grain and you have to um, try to be non-traditional, which is hard to do and stay ahead of the market. Otherwise you end up getting your fees pressed down so much you can't eat, right? The question then becomes Adam. So how do you, how do you know if you are in a commoditized market or if you're, if you're stuck in that you know, going with the grain as opposed to going against the grain? Are there like triggers or questions you ask yourself? So, so, yeah. what's, what's interesting is I still believe that there's, there could be an opportunity to continue to go with the grain depending on the, the company or the institution you partner with. So if you are working for one of those large wholesale asset managers that has such a global presence, then sometimes going with the grain means that they're, they're so large that they will eventually take what is left of the commoditized market. But 
if you really want to move, if you're really thinking about being ahead of the game and or ahead of the weight of capital, then you start start to you need to start looking at being niche. And when I say niche, you need to think about where exactly is the is the where exactly is the market moving and how do you do that? Because today we hear about you know what's going on in Europe with Brexit, uh, what the implications are for companies leaving the UK and moving into Europe, you know what the implications are ahead of the, the US election. Uh, you know, what does that mean for the global economy? Now, if I think about all of those things, uh, the way companies behave next will be driven by those macro indicators, also those like those high level themes. So for me, going against the grain is then driven by, by thinking about those products or services uh, which are going to be in demand in the years to come. Uh, and that can be driven by products which are higher return or you know, maybe they're backed by a strong thesis um, maybe you know certain economies are getting stronger and stronger. Therefore, you almost want to be be in there before everyone else starts to follow and price compression starts to uh, dictate. So for me, by the time price compression is dictating, that might be your time to get out or exit that opportunity. So everything for me is about not just about the opportunity itself, but it's about the price you get into it. Not, the, not just the price in, in monetary terms, but also in terms of the timing of that. Because when you get into that, that, will, that, that could have a, a, the, the amount of time and effort you put into something could be the same. But actually, the reward you get, out, the reward you get from that is going to be dependent on you know, when you execute it you know, and, and, and how you execute it. And, and, and that can also um, set you up for, for the rest of your career. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, timing is so crucial. And the, and the only way that I know how to work through timing, because obviously we cannot control when things happen largely in life, um, is I try to um, really focus on where I get my information. And so for me, that's with books like Kevin Kelly's Inevitable, where he talks about you know the, the 10 trends or the seven trends that will sort of change our world as we know it in the coming decades. And he was also one of the few humans who predicted what the internet would actually do to our modern society. Um, so I try to really um, curate my selection of humans that I engage with and my selection of resources that I listen to in order to figure out where the next step is. Because I don't know about you, Adam, but for me, there's too much noise. There's too many different opinions and there's too many people being PC about what they think or just trying to um, not ruffle feathers. So when you're trying to analyze markets or just stay abreast of what's happening, what are the sources that you go to? Do you have you know, favorite books or blogs or humans that you ask these questions to? Yes. Uh, yeah, typically, you know, Cody, it's quite interesting. I think in, in recent years, a lot of it's been driven by you know, influencers and social media. I think that um, um, you know, on, on, on what I do is I, I compartmentalize the various sectors or markets and, and industries that I'm interested in and I'm working on or working with. So for example, in uh, the real estate space, I, I, I take you know, a lot of, um, I, I 
take a lot of guidance directly from some of the leading uh, real estate investors in the world on a one-on-one -on -one basis by following them on social media, but also getting time with them one-on-one, um, -on -one, you know, every three months or six months. And that helps me keep abreast of what's going on in that sector or segment. And when it comes to things like venture capital or private equity, um, I have my own sources within Silicon Valley. Um, uh, because for me, what I read in the news or what I hear about, you know, through lots of third parties does tend to be noise. And, it, and I always try to validate what I'm reading or hearing with what the reality is. So for me, getting directly to the source is part and parcel of what I'm instilling into your world capital advisors today because, you know, what we'll find is a lot of those big institutions have to follow, you know, a PC framework or a framework that is kind of suited to the mantra of their business. I'm in the, I'm very privileged and blessed to be able to set up a business from its early, from its infancy at a time where technology is really driving the way we do things. So I'll, I'll you know, very much, you know, as an example, um, you know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of the deals or uh, the opportunities that I'm working on, um, I like to validate those opportunities by truly, if, if I'm being told about, you know, cutting edge technology and augmented reality or virtual reality or, you know, big data or artificial intelligence, uh, I have my own sources that I am following and connected to on a one-on-one on 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 basis or business-to-business basis um, that um, will help me validate a lot of those opportunities, which doesn't specifically relate to financial uh, validity. So uh, I'm able to talk to them about whether something is true and that helps me identify whether something makes sense for my investors. Yeah, it's, it's almost like having a, a board of directors for mm -hmm. life and business deals that's a little bit looser. No, I mean, that's one of the most important, I think, I think things that any human can have is to create their little, you know, Camelot Knights table, right? You have the trusted group of 10 or 20 or maybe more who sit around the table. And when you have a question on X sector or when you have a question on AI, then you know that... Um, you find an expert to help you in it as opposed to trying to learn it all yourself. So I, I think that is huge. And, and one of the things you've always been good at, Adam, is um, because next, I, what I want to talk about next is how you create these networks, right? Mm -hmm. um, because most people um, sort of, I think, they reactively let their networks come to them, right? So they're friends with whoever their children play with at school or go to school with. Um, their work colleagues and, and friends with those who work in their same department or who sit next to them. Um, you know, they're, they're close friends with the people that they went to college with. But as far as going out and actively looking for humans who you find interesting, engaging, and who can be, you know, beneficial to you and hopefully you are beneficial to them, so few people do it. Um, but the people who do do it are, you know, they're, they're, they're the Bill Clintons of the world who basically used his Rolodex to get the presidency. Um, and so in my world, I have like a very specific way in which I keep in touch with humans that I find engaging um, and that I have a contact management system that I use, not 
to sell anybody anything, but to make sure that I'm thoughtfully touching the humans who can make a huge impact on my life. So with you, you've always been so great at one, I think being very present and asking a lot of targeted questions to humans, which surprisingly not that many people do. Um, and so I think people come to you for that reason. But if you have to reflect on how you've been able to, to build this network, what would you say to somebody who says, okay, I want to start being proactive and I want to start building this type of group of humans. How do I do it? What would you say, Adam? What I'd say is, you know, in, in one way, um, relationships that come passively to you are, are sometimes by chance. But it's what you do with those relationships and what you decide to do as your next step, um, which can actually change the, the way you operate and, 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 and the way you live your life. Because when we, when we worked together, Cody, uh, um, I had... I was very privileged to have met, uh, you know, a number of people from other you know, sectors and industries. And I think the normal person would kind of disassociate with those individuals because either they weren't connected to their own industry or sector because they didn't understand their industry or sector. So they felt that uh, there was like little kind of benefit of, of, of connecting with them. But actually, before all of that, I typically connect with people who have a certain level of kind of spirituality, a certain level of um, kind of uh, in, in intensity of the way they do things, and a certain level of their of of having a similar thought process. So whilst we may be in two different worlds in what we do every day. Um, there's always not a clear alignment, uh, whether that's in terms of interests or objectives. And when you've got this clear alignment, it doesn't matter what industry you're both in. I, I get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of uh, connecting with those people. And and actually, when, while we worked together and we were working, you know, for a large, you know, uh, one of the world's largest asset managers, focusing on uh, managing money for you know for large institutional investors. I was very connected to, you know, uh, an individual who was very plugged into Silicon Valley, uh, uh, developing their own startups. Uh, for me, you know, he he was, uh, you know, a game changer to a lot of governments on on on, on setting up incubators for for uh, startups and angel investors as well to target. And that individual, for me, uh, wasn't only just an interesting person, uh, but he changed the way I looked at things. Um, he gave me advice that helped me navigate through the corporate world. He, you know, I, I saw him as being someone that really added a lot, a lot of value, not just personally, but professionally. And, and actually that same individual today is someone who I consider, you know, a, a key advisor to New World Capital Advisors on all venture capital deals, private equity deals. Um, and, you know, you know, that's an example of someone who's, who's, completely you know outside my network I've, I've now developed with them and actually through that individual uh, we're now connected to you know 20 other family offices uh, government institutions around the world and and likewise I'm now connecting capital to his company I'm now co-invested along other people with his firm and what I find is you know doors open when there's a spiritual alignment so 
or a connectivity of some sorts, um, which isn't related to me selling, you know, a mutual fund or uh, working in the same industry. So, so what I tend to have is I tend to have pockets of, um, of I mean, of, uh, of networks, you know, different networks and different markets and different sectors. Uh, but believe it or not, Cody, whenever I'm in, you know, I'm passing through New York or Dubai or I'm in London. If people are there at the same time, I love to bring those parties together because what I found is even though there's an alignment with those individuals on a personal basis or a business level, whenever all the parties come together, I tend to be the, the bridge between all parties. And I happen to then, uh, some, in, in many cases, have been the catalyst for those two parties to, uh, uh, to do business together or... Uh, develop a, a friendship. For example, two parties from two of my networks have gone and climbed Kilimanjaro together, and uh, there's been, um, uh, you know, parties, uh, two parties from you know various networks, which are now working on, um, you know, a venture capital investment fund for the UAE, UAE government in Dubai. So what I found is uh, a lot of it does come down to. Um, you know, your personal interests and alignment, uh, whether that's personally, professionally, spiritually. But I do genuinely um, believe that uh, a lot of this is about you making this happen and not being passive. Otherwise, yeah, you just become the, uh, the kind of the average guy in the street. And uh, But uh, I think that's how you really you know, stand out. Yeah, you know, I, I think you hit on two things that are so important is one, I've found that a lot of people will say, well, why are you having dinner with them? Or why are you meeting with them? Or, oh, you're going to go and, and do that? And why? People want to define relationships in a very systematic way. If I say I'm going to have dinner with a client this evening, they say, oh, okay, she's trying to sell something to the client. That makes sense. If I say I met this interesting woman, she heads a, you know, a, you know, I don't know, a geo um, and a nonprofit and works for the UN. And so I'm going to go, you know, meet up with her in New York and have dinner with her. And they're like, oh, really? Why? Right? They want to define exactly how the relationships work. And one of the things that I think is so gorgeous is this cross-pollination that you talked about. When you engage with, with humans that are not in your same realm, your mind is is widened and you're able to see a perspective that's a little bit different. And I think just like, you know, Steve Jobs through his calligraphy class uh, was inspired to create this entire ecosystem around beautifully designed things, beautifully designed and easily functioning things. Now, who would have thought that calligraphy would lead to one of the, the world's largest company? Um, but those are the serendipitous things that happen when you connect and reach out. And the other thing I think you said, so I would say with that one, the first one is don't look for the benefit and don't define the relationship. If there is that spiritual connection, which I want to get your definition of that afterwards, then engage. Um, and the second thing that you did that you talked about that is so powerful that again, I don't think people do enough is, is being a connector. I talk about that all the time. My, I, every single day, I try to at least introduce one person that I find use, that I find interesting to another human that I think could be useful for them. And it's just a systematic thing. I don't even think about it now, but at first I did. Um, and through that, 
you, your bridge, like you kind of have this evergreen bridge because anytime they connect with that other person, you don't even have to be talking to them, but they think of you because you were the originator. And if you're able to do that each time you travel by, by doing a dinner or something, um, that is huge. And, and my process is every time I travel, and Adam, you travel just as much as I do, um, I reach out to one person who is not a client or direct relation to my main business, which is investment management. And I, and I have a dinner or a lunch or a coffee with them. And, you know, at first all of my bosses and even, you know, now I have team, a team that schedules everything for me. And so they're like, why are you doing this? What's this dinner? And um, you have to stand your ground because it makes people uncomfortable at first. But what I found is those relationships scattered throughout the world are the ones that all of a sudden have the relationship with the government of Bolivia that I need to get into um, and they're able to help me. So, so t tell me two things here, Adam. One, when you're talking about this connection with somebody, there's two questions I have for you. What do you mean by spiritual connection? And two, since we're talking spirituality, we've both talked a little bit about our practices for like quieting the noise or for um, like reconnecting when we're moving at a million miles a minute. What practices do you have to do that? So really, um, uh, this is a, Cody's getting deep now, <laughs> but, um, right. So yeah, yeah. But, I, but what I would say is look, um, when I talk about spirituality or connecting with people, um, a lot of it's, you know, people sometimes confuse that with, um, you know, religion or a cultural aspect or some sort. Uh, I, think, I think of that and it, it goes beyond that because a lot of that is, you know, we live in a world where there are so many imperfections. There's a lot of social and economic imbalances. Um, I think a lot of that becomes amplified when we travel to like emerging economies. Like I'm sure you see it in, in, uh, in Latin Mexico, Bolivia and so forth. I mean, I, I see it a lot in uh, the Middle East and Asia where it's very clear that there's a, a, a distinguished, uh, uh, there's a distinct difference between the rich and the poor. And for me, a lot of things are, you know, the way we, the way we carry ourselves in the way we do business, the way we carry ourselves, the way we deal with others, the way we talk to others, the way we, uh, you know, we um, operate on a day-to-day -day life. So for me, it actually doesn't even go in, into business. It starts from home. So how do we carry ourselves? And uh, for me, um, you know, I, I look at uh, things from a level of, uh, you know, being, how showing, you know, Good integrity. How someone talks to the, the the janitor or the cleaner or the CEO. You know how do you treat those people? And I do look at people on a personal level to see how they treat others, no matter how successful they are or how great they are or how I perceive them to be. And a lot of that actually is where I develop a connection with people uh, across the world, and that helps me break down barriers if I don't speak maybe the same language as them or you know maybe english you know isn't you know maybe their english isn't as great as uh, they want it to be because where you human what's amazing about humans is that we develop relationships based on those uh, on those on those connections on those spiritual connections and um when i go and travel the world i feel that um you know it doesn't matter where you go in the world but that spirituality 
uh, and uh, and believing in something you know greater than yourself and having some humility is really where um, it helps me uh, kind of bring me back down to earth. Uh, particularly, you know, when things are getting a little crazy, I like to uh, take a step back and then realize how fortunate fortunate I am. Uh, you know, God has given me great family, good health, and the ability to, uh, and the opportunity even to, uh, you know, change the life or, or, or empower other people, no matter how small that may sound, or, or, uh, or even if it's a small number of people. That for me is, is kind of how I would define uh, spirituality, even though it's a long-winded uh, uh, explanation. No, it was beautiful. Thank you, Adam. What, what about this one? Um, you know me. I, I love books. I'm always reading something. What, what is the book that you are currently reading right now and the one that you go back to and reference more than any other book? Interestingly, um, and it's, uh, you know which book I've been reading? I was reading this on the plane. It was uh, the Four Hour Workweek. Um, uh, which was, uh, I, I know it's a, a book that you're um, an avid fan <laughs> Yes, and, I am. Uh, and um, the, the, the reason I was actually reading it was because uh, I'm actually in the process of uh, setting up um, uh, some, some processes to outsource some work uh, to uh, third parties in, um, in uh, three other countries. And I actually want to outsource the work to people I know in those countries versus, I think he referred to giving it to Brickwork India. Tim Ferriss, I think he mentioned Brickwork India in the book. So I actually wanted to, I was actually rereading the book to get a feel for what processes Tim Ferriss was including in his you know, life management in order to outsource some of his life. Um, so that's pretty inspiring for me because um, the way the book uh, can inspire others to kind of challenge the status quo, challenge the nine to five, um, is allowing me to actually uh, you know, empower other people in other um, countries to actually give them employment rather than giving it to someone uh, locally to me. Uh, who basically um, uh, will allow those people in emerging economies to you know, feed more people and do more for others. It will also allow me to benefit my, benefit my business as I plan to expand my business in uh, those economies in the future. I love it. Well, what about this? Let me ask you another question. You know, you, you travel like crazy like I do um, and are as efficiency focused as I am. What app or piece of technology do you find most useful right now that most people don't know about or that was new to you? That's, a, that's an interesting one. I use so many apps. Um, you know, I, know, I know there's been some that's been recommended by you. I know that uh, I mean, I'm using all types of, um, I mean, what, what I actually do, I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I use it a lot. I only started using it in the, in the last couple of weeks, but I found it tremendously useful. It's um, Slack. And I use Slack. Well, I've heard of this, but I'd, I've never used it, you know? That's what, you found one app that I haven't tried yet, Adam. Talk yeah. to me about it. Yeah, so, so essentially, um, what I've been doing is uh, developing a, a technology startup um, called Luxury Promise. And our technology guys are based in different jurisdictions. We've got some in London, we've got some in Tunisia. 
Uh, we've also got some in India. And, and I found it really difficult to have like lots of WhatsApp um, conversations with those people. And uh, I'm basically bringing all my communication together like in one place now. Um, and it allows me to, uh, to create teams, uh, have a real-time messaging. I can archive sort of messages and bring them out as soon as I can, rather than having to search. Like in WhatsApp, I find it quite difficult to search. So I've kind of kept slack for my professional technology development uh, usage, and I use WhatsApp for just a broader business kind of connectivity or personal connectivity. Yeah, but I found Slack really useful. Fantastic. We'll link that in the show notes, um, that actual app for anybody that's interested in it. I've heard just a plethora of a lot of tech professionals using it, but also a lot of people managing virtual teams, which is what I do as well. Um, and I also find it challenging. I use Asana as a um, project management tool, but I, I was listening to an interview with um, the CEO and founder of, uh, of um, WordPress. And, uh, you know, something like 25, 26% of the internet is actually housed on a WordPress site, which I thought was astounding. And, um, and he was talking specifically about how the next evolution in technology he feels will come in these communication platforms. That now there's, you know, the blogging platform has been kind of built out. The e-commerce version of blogging is, is coming around, but that really there is not a great application for communication that mimics the way our brain thinks and categorizes and engages with humans. Um, so I will definitely have to try this one. Now, now, what about this? You know, the last thing I want to talk about before we close out is people started in very corporate institutionalized roles, right? And so if there are those listening right now who won, let's start with our are working on their corporate career climb, right? They're, they're trying to move up the corporate ladder. Since we're not too far removed from that, what, what is like the one piece of advice you would give someone who is trying to maybe get to where you were as, you know, managing, managing director and, and, you know, head of a region or as, as a leader within a company, what would you tell them? What I would say is, you know, for, for any, you know, youthful or, uh, you know, folks are looking for the next, you know, to, to progress in their career. What I would, what I would do, uh, you know, now that I've come out of the institutional kind of environment and I, I'm building my own institution from the ground up, I would say, you know, there's maybe you would couple the fact that you should think about the markets that are going to be big in the years to come. And what are the drivers that are going to make those markets big in the years to come? So, for example, if the low interest rate environment prevails, like it has in the US, which is now on the up, and UK and Europe, what is it that financial institutions will be focusing on in the years to come? One could argue it's going to be like alternative assets or real assets. And if the thesis that drives that is going to be interest rates or central banking policies or so forth, I would try to align the focus on where the business that that individual is working for sees the future for their business. So 
try to develop an interest or focus or try to be like the project lead or the lead off uh, a specific um, uh, you know target market that's that could be a strategic focus for that business as you know Cody when we were at State Street Global Advisors our business was like a strategic uh, initiative for the firm um, and we happened to be in the right place at a time where that was the strategic focus. So we spotted that opportunity and our job was to maximize the assets under management. And I would say that in this day and age, anyone that's, I'd say that's that opportunity that we had kind of um, maybe uh, looked at as being the cornerstone of kind of, or a cornerstone of where we had a successful career in State Street. Uh, I'd say that any institution now will be having something similar where uh, there will be a cornerstone to the success and viability of those businesses in the future. So I would start to shift focus and alignment towards those business areas, such as alternative uh, assets, real assets, real estate, uh, private equity, those businesses that could be the drivers for those businesses in the future. That's, that's actually brilliant, Adam, because you're so right. Now, when I think back a upon my career, every stage I've looked for a growth market. Um, first, it was exchange traded funds, which at the time I was with what is now the fastest growing and second largest provider of this type of investment. Um, but it was new and burgeoning, so I went there. And then I realized that the U.S. market, like you talked about, things just work in the U.S., right? It's, you know, it's a high trust market, which means that you know that if your power goes off, eventually they will turn back on your power. And if you call the police, the police will eventually show up. And if you're driving on the streets and you get a flat tire, you will get help, right? Things just work in the US. And that's the same thing for business as well, which means it's great because there's a lot of infrastructure. But I realized if I went to Latin America, things don't always work there. Things aren't at face value always going to be fixed and so with that comes a lot of opportunity in the chaos and so that was my next move in my next growth market and then lately i saw that the type of investment i was selling at my last firm um, was a race to the bottom on pricing and so i went with uh, a different type of investing which was more active type ETFs, which were a little bit different. And so because they were a little bit different, we protected the price of those assets and moved forward. So that's, I find that fascinating. It's very true. And I think, you know, the other thing um, is, I'm not sure that very many people look at their career like that. They may say, I want to work for this company because this is a growth company. And that is important too. But within the company, what are you doing? You know, if you're in operations, Right now, um, there may be opportunity, but there's also going to be a lot of automation. Um, if you're in compliance because of how much the government is regulating everything these days, that's actually a huge growth market, right? Risk and compliance and dealing with the government. So yeah, if you can find those niches where things are growing, your career is going to leapfrog in a way that it never will if you are right now in an area like, let's think about it, like hard copy magazine sales, right? Like going out and selling advertisements in a hard copy magazine. 
You could be the best hard copy magazine advertising salesperson in existence and your business may still go away. So I think if you can take a step back and analyze where the market is going, you're going to go far. And beautifully, you can always just reach out to other people that you find intelligent and skilled and experienced in your industry. And I bet they will tell you where they think the market is going. You don't even have to be smart enough to figure it out. Absolutely. And, and that's uh, exactly a tenant of you know, markets that you know, I've wanted to get involved in, but I needed to get a better insight into it. I could either spend 10 years working at an institution trying to get, you know, work my way up the ladder, or I can go directly to uh, a leader or a pioneer of that industry who can give me a first-hand uh, view of the next big thing. And then to validate that, uh, a lot of it is about just, you know, rolling up your sleeves and working hard. <laughs> and um, and uh, I always believe that, you know, you, you know, there's no substitute for hard work, but you've also got to ensure that you're on the right path. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's, you know, are you, are you working on the, the right things? Right. And then once you make sure they're the right things, you got to work hard at them. Um, what, if, so my last question for you is this. So you built this very successful career institutionally and then decided, you know, you were going to go out on your loan, build your own deal, leaving what I know to be a very, very lucrative, um, business, financially, lots of security, lots of confidence, huge upside, all the things that we know come with being successful in corporate America. And I'm sure like me, you had an exit tax, right? Which is money you leave on the table um, if you don't stay for a certain amount of time. And so two questions here. The first question is, how did you get over leaving all of that behind? How, how did you get over the fear and then secondly, for those humans that are interested in doing something similar, how do you suggest they go about the progression of starting to consider their own side business or side hustle? Yeah. Well, well firstly, Cody, I like to say that you're, you're, um, uh, I like that quote, exit tax, because that's exactly how it felt. <laughs> and um, I would say, look, there, there, there's one thing that um, I, I'm a strong believer in. Um, and I've never been shy of this, uh, which is spending or giving up money because money can, money can come and go, but time will never come back. And, you know, if time isn't going to come back, how am I going to optimize my time and use it wisely? And I did come to a point where actually I was probably a little bit of a contrarian, right? I have a growing family, growing liabilities second kid, third, we were planning a third kid. Uh, everything was almost like, I was almost being lined up like for a career to like follow the traditional kind of corporate path. Um, why did I kind of go against that other than, you know, time uh, being something that, uh, you know, you can't get back. A lot of it's driven by my, my passion for uh, doing business in a certain way and building the foundations and principles of a business um, and developing that in, in line with my own kind of code of uh, integrity and ethics. And, and a lot of that is because when I was working for the large institutional uh, investment houses, 
at a time where they were less commoditized, I felt that you know business was interesting. Uh, I was learning a lot of life skills. I was very privileged, and I felt that it was almost like a win-win. What I was giving to those institutions is what I was getting back in return. But it got to a stage where, as I was traveling more broadly across the world, I started to realize that investors and people across the world look at things and behave very differently. So if you're an investor sitting in Africa, or a country in Africa, Nigeria, or Kenya, or South Africa, you look at things very differently to somebody sitting in the Netherlands, or Switzerland, or London. And those types of um, perspectives of meeting those types of investors start to make me realize that it's very difficult for the large institutions of this world to talk to really cater for people in local markets where the world is becoming more regulated you know governments are becoming much more stringent in the way they do things which i felt that i almost could try and spend my my life trying to find an institution that ticks all those boxes that offers products to every single country or what i could do is set up my own investment firm uh, which was going to focus on opportunities which are geared to the markets and the sectors uh, that I'm really passionate about. And because I don't believe that one size fits all, I do believe that uh, you know, having, you know, developing a business where I would either put my own money into those opportunities or uh, I would actually, you know, you know, putting my money on the line in equity, you know, that would give me a lot of not not it would prove a lot to my investors uh, that the product that I'm delivering to them or the service I'm delivering to them is best in class. Um, and leaving money on the table at those institutions, I believe that uh, you you know you make it back tenfold. And that's maybe where the maybe the spiritual aspect comes in. That I don't believe that I do believe that money is temporary. Um, but if you're going to be successful in something, uh, you know money will come and what's the worst that can happen you try to build out an institution you put your heart and soul into something and you end up working for one of the companies you would have been working for anyway so i don't you know I, whilst I, it may sound like um you know it's easier said than done and, and, and believe me it's, it's it's really it's it's not easy um i think that there needs to be a plan of action and a lot of these things do come from you know, almost traveling to locations, seeing the world. I don't think there's any substitute for, for physically going out and seeing the world and meeting people uh, from all walks of life. And I think a lot of that was a contributing factor to setting up new world capital advisors, developing new businesses, and, and you now, now promoting entrepreneurship over working for the corporate. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think it is very hard. You're right to go out and build the business. And I've, you know, I, I built my last startup and was refined and then, you know, have built a, this international business within First Trust and now building up, you know, this, this next business of mine. And, but what I've also found is that um, it's actually not as hard as we assume it's going to be. And, you know, I've heard the quote before that we underestimate what 
or I'm sorry, we overestimate what we can do in a year, but we underestimate what we can do in five or 10. And so I think what happens is, you know, the people that, that fail in these businesses, they really overestimate how much cash flow they're going to have in the first year. They really overestimate how many clients are going to jump on board in the first month or six months. And so when it doesn't pan out the way that they thought due to their overestimations, after a year, they shudder, right? They, they shut down the company. But what happens after that first year, year and after the grind is that you start to underestimate that ball that's slowly rolling downhill and gaining momentum and just needs more time to flush out. Um, and none of that to say, you know, I've definitely had firms like my last one where I realized, you know, this is not actually what I thought it was going to be and not what I want to spend my life doing. And so I, you know, I sold the company. Um, and so I, I think you also don't want to stick with something just because you started it. You want to build a company as cheaply as possible. You want to do what you think aligns with your skill set and your vision. And then you want to pivot if it doesn't work out correctly. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, if you truly focus on the skills that you're best at, like you talk about speaking about your strengths, if you focus on your strengths and you're doing the things that you know you are uniquely skilled in, the money does just come. Uh, and not always in the way that you anticipate. So for the person right now who is saying, okay, I'm at my corporate nine to five and I want to test my side idea or I want to go and, and start trying to figure out how to do something on the side. What, what could you tell them? What would be like your one piece of advice for them if, if they're listening and want to go start trying to build a business? Look, if you're sitting in that nine to five and you're and you're feeling restricted both in terms of time and uh, you know putting real um, effort, think about the think about what parts of that business require your time and dedication, and think about what parts of that business could be potentially outsourced to get you to a stage where you you can get capital or raise capital uh, to help you leave your nine to five. So in a lot of these businesses, uh, and even you know, one of the businesses I was involved in at the was at State Street, um, I relied heavily on outsourcing a lot of the, the tech uh, development and a lot of the, the operational uh, development of the business while I focused on the strategy, utilizing you know, my strengths and skills. Um, and only until I was ready um, to leave that gave me the, the, the confidence that things were moving forward and revenues were just about to come into play. So I think the, the, the one thing which is easy uh, to fall down on is, uh, is, is you can lose that momentum if you feel that you don't have control. So the most important thing is if you are outsourcing, you need to stay on top of it and you need to ensure that you've got a strong outsourcing partner. And sometimes, uh, it may be difficult if you are outsourcing to someone on the other side of the world, and it is better to do it locally to you. So, for example, there's lots of ways you can get interns involved in your business and, and provide opportunity to others locally to you uh, within your, your own network. Um, and even through that, uh, that business, I also believe that those who help you grow, uh, you share equity. You, know, you give them a part of the business to help you grow. And once you're ready, you're in a position to, to go and drive the business forward. Um, so, so that's kind of my takeaway. A lot of it is about just having a strategic way 
of of executing. And, yeah, and I uh, think too, not doing it too soon, right? I mean, one of the things that, you know, I think as humans, um, I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of people that are in corporate world that are maybe fantasizing a bit the role of being an entrepreneur. And the truth is, is that um, you want to be careful about jumping too early. I think we have this, this thing as humans where we like things neatly tied up in a bow and, and that's natural. We want to focus a hundred percent on that passionate thing that fuels us. Um, but we also have to eat and live and like pay rent and things like that. Right. And so what I try to tell entrepreneurs is look at your current role, whatever it is that you're doing. What are the things that are the big game changers as far as you being seen as successful in that role? Focus on those. Try to cut out as much as possible of the things that don't matter, which can be painful. Um, but there's more resources on my blog. I'll link to them on how to do that. So cut out all of the things that are just busy work. And what you'll find is that most jobs do not require nine to five time commitments. It is a totally socially arbitrary thing that we've agreed to. But at the end of the day, your job is not to be a nine to fiver. Your job is to be the best attorney or to close the most deals or whatever the case may be. And so if you can get your job to be fit within, let's say, two to three hours a day, four hours a day, maybe, and spend those extra two hours testing your business, your side business, and seeing if it's a real market and questioning whether people will actually buy what you're selling because cash flow at the end of the day is the only thing that matters, then I think you can feel pretty confident and eventually leave. But continue working for that corporation without guilt because if you are doing what you agreed to do, which is your actual job description, then it, does, it shouldn't matter if it takes you four hours to do it and the person next to you eight. I'll take the person who's happy and for any day, right? That's so true. And uh, I, I think uh, that, uh, that was highlighted well, very well in, in, that, in, in my re recent book I was reading. And, um, and what's interesting, I, I feel that um, a lot of people, when they're working for these institutions, and I've been guilty of this myself, it was almost easy to take things as face value and almost believe them as the way they should be. And it was only as through experience, I started to agree that actually, unless I'm seeing the mutual benefit for both parties, I, I actually have to then see, does this actually make sense? And is this within the, 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 the confines of what we're gonna do to be successful in that day job? So no one should ever make you make a decision for you or put a price on something for you. Uh, but it does, it is up to the individual to take ownership and I'm sure if you take ownership and like you said, working for the large institutions, um, a lot of it is about uh, time management and cutting out a lot of those kind of meetings, which are just meetings for the sake of meetings and uh, really focusing on what's important, which is, you know, doing your best in your day job, you know, proving how good you are. But actually with that, it comes confidence in how good you're going to be or how great you're going to be in your um, in your your other uh, ventures a hundred percent so so with that um 
What would you like to leave everyone listening with today? What's sort of the one takeaway that, you know, if you could be sitting in front of these humans who are obviously searching for something and looking to grow and striving, what would you want them to know? You know, I think we've covered, we've covered quite a lot, but one thing I would um, like to leave everybody with is probably my favorite quote, Cody, which is, an optimist sees an opportunity in every challenge. I love it. That's one of my favorites too, Adam. I'm going to add that to my Bible, which um, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but, <laughs> but in Evernote, which you use Evernote as well, don't you, Adam? Yeah. I do, I do. Yeah. So in Evernote, I have a quotes folder, a quotes notebook, and in it, I write down everything that just speaks to me so that when I'm having moments, like we were talking about Adam this morning, when I'm having issues and difficulties and you know challenges in my way, I kind of scroll through this little personal Bible and look for inspiration. So I will add that to it. Now, Adam, if people want to find you and uh, engage with you, what are the best mediums to do that? Where do they find you? So I'm, I think like a lot of people, I'm in various social networks. Uh, I'm on Snapchat. Uh, and actually, uh, just to share with everybody, uh, Snapchat has been a tremendous way to, um, to, to communicate with a lot of the networks outside the institutional world, particularly with private investors and family investors. I found it uh, you know, game-changing in the Middle East where I met a lot of people through Snapchat and we're now discussing um, uh, real estate opportunities. Uh, so I'm on Snapchat, I'm on Instagram, I'm on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, so you can look me up, Adam Sadiq. Perfect. And that's A-D-A-M-S-A-D-I-Q. We'll link it in the show notes as well as some of the resources we talked about today. So Adam, thank you so much for being on the call. You're so welcome, Cody. It's always a pleasure. And, um, and everybody out there, just keep looking up and you know, you know, reach for the sky. Anything is possible.